0: Welcome everyone, my name is Devan Mangamurthy, I'm a student fellow at South Asian Studies Council at Yale Macmillan Centre, and welcome back to South Asian Studies Council's occasional podcast with South Asia's most significant intellectual voices. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Sushant Singh, Senior Fellow at Centre for Policy Research in New Delhi, former Deputy Editor of the Indian Express for Strategic Affairs, National Security and International Affairs, and a three-time visiting lecturer at Yale University. He was awarded the Ramnath Gonka Prize for Excellence in Journalism in both 2017 and 2018, and is the author of several books, including Mission Overseas, Daring Operations by the Indian Military, and Note by Note, The India Story 1947 to 2017. Prior to becoming a journalist, he served for 20 years in the Indian Army. Thank you for being here.
1: Thank you, Devan. Thank you for calling me.
0: And I want to start off with a bit of a personal note. After serving in the military, you chose journalism as a vocation. Can you talk about that transition and why you ended up becoming a journalist after your military service?
1: So the military service started at a very young age. I joined the military academy at the age of twenty. I was commissioned at the age of twenty-one. Served all over the all over all over the country. Three stints in Kashmir. You know, stint with the United Nations in Côte d'Ivoire. Uh, it was a very interesting experience. But by the by the end of two decades, it seemed like that I that life I had experienced all that that life had to give me. And, could, and was ready to move on. Uh, in fact, it was rather serendipity that uh, uh, that I moved on to journalism from, uh, uh, from, from the military. I did enjoy reading and writing. I did occasional writing, which friends knew about. And then somebody approached me and asked if I would be willing to meet the editors of the Indian Express newspaper in Delhi. I was working in a corporate role at that point in time. I went and uh, met the editors who offered me this position as the as the deputy editor at that time, the associate editor, and later on I became the deputy editor. Uh, and those six years at the at the Indian Express as a journalist, and then subsequently as an independent journalist, and now with the Caravan as the consulting editor, uh, have been some of the m- most wonderful years of my life. Uh, it has been it has been very very enriching. It has been it has been very it, it has been a great experience. It has been an eye opener in so many uh, in so in so many ways. Uh, and as I always tell people, journalism is closest to spying that you will ever get, you know, because when you do reporting, you cultivate sources, you build relationships, you ditch them, you ditch them at the wrong time because you need to do the story. And uh, it, it's about building human relationships and at some level exploiting them, which is what spies do a, a, as well. So if you if you can be a good journalist, you can probably be a very good spy as
0: well. And it's funny you bring that up because... It was revealed in 2021 that beginning in 2018, your phone was subject to surveillance by a government agency using the NSO group's Pegasus spyware. And can you talk a little bit about how that revelation has affected your life and your work? And more broadly, as you chart the transition from military officer to journalist and sort of careful watcher of Indian politics, what does that mean for India's relationship with journalism and media?
1: So the question is in two parts. One is the Pegasus revelations. Of course, uh, Siddharth Vadrajan is a very dear friend, and when the uh, when the list came to him first, he did call me up and said, you know, of course over a secure medium, that my my cell number figured in that in that list which the Pegasus project had had, had given him. Uh, but even before that, uh, we were aware that through WhatsApp, Pegasus had started working, and there was a there were you know uh, unsolicited video calls on WhatsApp would which would come from some numbers in Eastern Europe. Which would then allow them to exploit your phone and enter your phone. And I had received those calls earlier. So when it became publicly known globally that uh, Pegasus uses WhatsApp and video calls, I was more or less certain that my phone had been infected with Pegasus. I did not know by whom, whether by Pakistan, China, United States, Israel, or India. Uh, But the revelation later on clearly made it clear that it was some agency of the government of India uh, which had accessed my phone. Now, for very obvious reasons, uh, one is because I was relating on—I uh, was reporting on issues related to national security, you know, international relations. Also at that time, I was reporting on uh, issues related to higher judiciary. There was much controversy, much controversy in uh, in the Supreme Court at that point in time, and also on uh, other institutional bodies like the CVC and the CBI. And some of my reporting was actually making a difference in those domains. And it is around that time my phone seemed to have entered the list of the Pegasus project. Uh, it did uh, initially because I was in a sense prepared uh, and I did not want to get affected by by the Pegasus uh, thing entering your phone. It does affect you psychologically, it's not easy to live it down. Uh, and you do believe that you know it's like a violation of your privacy. You know, people are people are seeing through your probably. You know, it's like somebody watching your bedroom. You know, it's like it's, it's it's the same thing because your phone is a very private space. You're talking to your friends. You're talking to your wife. You're talking to your kids. You're talking to your relatives. You're talking you're talking to everyone, and you're talking to sources. This that's the first thought. You feel that your privacy has been violated. The second thought is you worry about the safety of your sources because some of your sources, for various re- various reasons, may have been in con- in contact with you on your on your phone. And whether it is on any platform that they may have approached me, whether it is on Signal or WhatsApp or, you know, whatever that may be, the fact is, or email, the fact is that my complete phone was available to the, to the government. They, they were actually accessing my whole device. So then you worry about the safety of your sources and what happens to them. Some of them happens to be senior bureaucrats. Some of them happen to be senior intelligence officials. Some of them happen to be, you know, uh, constitutional functionaries, uh, military officers. You you worry about them as to what's going to happen, uh, what's going to happen to, happen to them. And of course, the third thing you worry about is uh, that it has a chilling effect on a lot of other journalists. So I may brazen it out. I may, t- I may, I may say I don't care. I give it, I, you know, hell to you guys. I'm going to do what I want to do, and this is going to, I'm going to double down on it. But that could be my personality, my attitude, my approach. That may not be true for a large number of people who are in the business of reporting and and writing. They may get scared. They may self-censor. They may say, Why do we need to get into this trouble? Why do we, why do we need to be on the radar of the government? And they may operate differently, and it then affects the quality of journalism. It affects the kind of uh, the way in which people can speak truth to power. So uh, it has uh, uh, it has it has a very significant uh, detrimental effect on uh, on Indian journalism. Uh, as far as Indian journalism is concerned, there were structural factors which go beyond Pegasus or the intimidation uh, that has gone on in in recent years. Uh, the the two basic structural factors are the. The commercial structure of ownership of the Indian media, where the Indian media is largely owned by companies which have other businesses' interests, and they they can be arm-twisted very easily into doing things because it's not possible for them to take on the government. And the second is the social structure of Indian journalism, where a large number of Indian journalists come from upper-caste Hindu background. They just do not reflect the 85% of India, whether it is in terms of Muslims, whether it is in terms of caste, whether it is in terms of gender. So you know you may see a lot of anchors and journalists at a certain level who are women but you will not find top editors who are women in leadership roles women are just not there there's a glass ceiling so there's a gender bias there's a caste bias there is a religious bias and it's a very thin sliver of indian society is reflected in the journalist in, in in journalism the third structural factors in last 15 to 20 years was the advent of technology, and which everybody grappled with, whether it was the New York Times or Washington Post, or whether it were Indian publications, that how do you deal with the, the social media, with, uh, with the websites, and how do you how do you deal, deal deal with that? But what really broke the back more than the structural factors was what has happened with the current government, with the current dispensation in last nine and a half years. And the biggest indicator of that is the fact that uh, in the freedom of press rankings that the uh, Reporter Sans Frontier brings out, India is now down to 161 out of 180 countries. It was somewhere in the 130s when it started in 20, 2014, and now it is down to 161. There are countries like North Korea and China, uh, which are which are which are below us, um, very very few countries, and it's something which should concern us and worry us because if you do not have journalism. Uh, your democracy cannot be really safe. Your democracy cannot be strong. People need to speak to, to power. People need to be told what's going on. And to give you an example, you know, and I'm sorry, it's a long answer that I'm giving, but to give you a long, give you an example about Israel, uh, look at uh, what Indian journalists have done. They've just gone onto the Israeli side and and created a kind of an Islamophobic narrative uh, about 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 Palestine and Hamas. Without realizing that this involves human lives, there are two or three or many sides to this story, which includes people, Palestinian people, which includes uh, other other actors as well. And and this this is the kind of narrative which you see more and more in the in the Indian media, uh, reflecting the views of the government and the ruling dispensation, uh, but not looking at the overall context or providing an honest, balanced answer. Actually, to call it journalism is unfortunate. There are media people who are actually just working in the media business.
0: That's a pretty comprehensive answer, but I want to focus in on one part of it, which is sort of the changing political climate for journalism over the last nine and a half years under the Modi government. You served with the Indian military. You're now a journalist covering Indian affairs. And you have children. Are you optimistic about the future of India? And as someone who has gone from being a protector and defender of the country to being someone surveilled by the current government, do you have a different relationship with the country than you did before?
1: That's a tough one to answer. Uh, at one level, I do remain optimistic because if I were not optimistic, I would not be working in India, working on Indian issues, writing about India, doing what, I, what I'm what i doing. I do genuinely believe that the, uh, that the uh, idea of India or the project that brought India, post, post, the post-colonial India that came after 1947, is the kind of India which can survive which can thrive which can become a strong country considering the kind of diversities that we have in terms of caste religion language culture uh, eating habits name whatever it is the only way india can be a strong country if it if it accepts its diversities takes them along and the way to do it is to have a secular plural you know progressive republic there's no other way it can be and i'm sure indians will slowly realize uh, if not if not immediately but they will realize that that's the only way they can thrive and survive, and that's the way this that's that's the way that's the way I've done. So I do remain optimistic at one level. What's the timeline of my optimism? I I really don't know what the timeline is. Uh, you know, of course, things can change very quickly in politics, in society. We really do not, we really do not know. But I do believe that India would have to come down, uh come back to the path that it was on, because if it chooses not to come back, come back on the path, then it would not be India anymore. It would be a very different country. Uh, it would be a very different uh, different world. And what was your second question? Sorry
0: about the changing relationship with India.
1: My changing relationship with uh, with India. So you know there are two ways of looking at India. India is a geographical entity, uh, and India is a is India as an entity as a space and time in my mind. So today's India may not be exactly the India that was, let's say, in in, in the nineteen nineties or in two thousands. But it is still my India. Uh, I'm an Indian. I'm an Indian passport holder. I go back to India. I live in India. I work in India. I only visit Yale uh, tem- temporarily for, uh, for, for teaching for a semester or two. So you know, I, I remain an Indian. I am an Indian. I, agree. I remain invested in India.
0: And that India, that new India, is one that is newly assertive on the world stage. Is there a mismatch between that assertiveness at a mismatch with its actual military and political capabilities?
1: Uh, partly yes. I think uh, it's a desire. A little bit of overreach is definitely there. India's current standing, as you know, what India's per capita income is two thousand two hundred dollars per, uh, per 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 person. You know, which is low, which is the lowest in G twenty. Just to compare, China is somewhere around twelve thousand uh, US dollars. Indonesia is somewhere around eight to nine thousand US dollars. So India is a very poor country when you look at per capita terms. It is highly unequal. It is as unequal as uh, as as post-apartheid South Africa or Putin's Russia. So it's a highly unequal society. It's a very poor country. Uh, it really does not have the ability to project power beyond its borders. It's struggling with China on the border on, on the border uh, over the last 40-odd 40, 40 months. It's struggling with uh, a, a major internal security problem in Manipur. It's struggling in Kashmir. So there are its own internal troubles that it is unable to deal with. Its ability to project power uh, beyond its borders is very, 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 very limited. It's a very poor country. It really does not have the kind of wealth or the capacity to do it. But India has always, because of its sheer size, its sheer geographical location, and the power of its ideas that India exists as a democracy in, a, in, a, in the global south, and uh, as one of the first countries, major countries to be, to become independent from colonial rule, has always had a heft which goes beyond this economic and military capabilities, and that continues to remain true even today. That, of course, Nehru was the prime example of what, what, happened, what happened at that point in time. And I think uh, the current government, uh, in trying to exaggerate and inflate India's position or India's standing, uh, has only done it more for the domestic audience, but not for the international audience. The international audience or the people who are globally well-informed are fully aware as to what India's capabilities are, what India's capacities are, uh, what India is doing vis-a-vis China or, or how India is being second-bested in Maldives. They don't need to really know that. But domestically, yes, it has somehow been built up that India now is much more powerful, much more respected, you know, much more daring than it has ever been in its history. That may or may not be true. And the consequences of that, we have to still see them playing out.
0: What are the consequences though, at the domestic level, of the difference between the current government's focus on external power projection, whether it's conflict with China, whether it's what's going on in different South Asian countries, and simmering conflicts within India, not just Manipur and JNK, but also conflicts in central India, in places like Bahastar and um, or in a place like Punjab. What are the consequences for Indian people and for Indian internal politics of the neglect of those kinds of issues?
1: So there are there are very significant consequences. One is, of course, the social and political instability that has caused by the domestic conflicts. Domestic conflicts always cause you know, a kind of bring a bring a kind of instability which cannot be easily easily handled. They open fissures, they open fault lines which are very, very difficult to bridge. And they also bring focus on the very unitary ideology that the Bhati Janta Party and Mr. Modi have always believed in, where everything is one India, one religion, one language, one culture. And once you, you, know, you look at most of these conflicts, whether it is in Manipur, whether it is in Kashmir, whether it is in Punjab, whether it is in Basta, it is about people who are diverse, who are different from this unitary idea. And then this brings out the focus on. So when something happens to, to Sikhs or to Christians in Manipur or to Muslims in Kashmir, or to tribals in uh, in Bastar, the focus immediately comes on this idea of unitariness that everybody is same and every Indian has to speak the same language, has to wear the same colored clothes, and you know do whatever in a, in a one nation one election, one nation one food, one nation one fertilizer. You know X Y Z. Uh, that's something you know, which which it brings the focus on, and that then le- leads to a lot of other people started start thinking as to how their uniqueness or their diversity is going to be affected. So whether it is the Tamils and Tamil Nadu, you see the kind of anger against this unitary ideology or people in Kerala or you hear from people in Mizoram or you hear from people in uh, in, in other parts of the country because India is a very, very diverse country with people with different languages, different cultures and then, you know, linguistic tendencies t- tend to erupt. All those kind of tendencies tend to erupt. And I will give you an example of uh, Jinnah going to, going to Bangladesh to Dhaka, the, then East Pakistan. And talking about Urdu as being the national language when it was spoken by a very very small minority, and the kind of protests, and then Jinnah was a big hero. Pakistan had just been created; it is less than a year after Pakistan was created. The students went out and protested against him, and it is those kind of tendencies that come out. Those kind of, you know, the the, the threat to diversity then becomes uh, an anger against the unitary dispensation and the unitary ideology. That's something which is the primary thing which we should people should realize when internal security or internal disputes come on. On the external disputes, what clearly happens is, you know, by building up India's, by hyping India's abilities or India's capacities to do things abroad, whether in Pakistan or vis-a-vis China, you are actually limiting your options and constraining you into the kind of actions that you may not want to take, or you end up lying to the people of your country, not telling them the truth. And that's something which we have seen with respect to China. Because you are so worried that you cannot take on the Chinese military. You do not want to get into a conflict with China. And Foreign Minister Jai Shankar said that China is such a big economy. How can I take it, take it on? You know, in a candid movement, he actually, actually slipped out. The truth did slip out from him. So what you do is you try and either suppress information, which is completely undemocratic, completely antithetical to how a good go- go- government should work out. You don't allow questions in parliament and secondly if information come out, comes out then people start believing that this government because it has told and projected that it is so powerful and the propaganda has gone around that it should just go and thrash china it should just go and enter beijing or it to just take take on take over tibet or make tibet free or do whatever go into xinjiang go to, and help help the US in taiwan straits and, but that not be within your capacities or you, you may not have the ability to do that and those that dichotomy that gap between reality and fiction is something which can really, you know, put you into put you into great trouble because you may be under tremendous domestic pressure to do stuff which you are not capable of doing. And I think that is something uh, which Indians and people like you, me, others should worry about that where this could lead to at a moment of crisis, how it could push the political levers of power at a moment of crisis, and what public opinion could cause.
0: I want to get back to that second part of that answer in a second, but first. You're going to be giving a talk about Manipur at Yale, and I wonder if you could give us a bit of a preview about what that talk will deal with and the consequences of that very specific internal security situation for the rest of the country.
1: So the uh, the talk that I want to give on Manipur is to say that do not look at it as only as an internal security issue. Uh, it is an issue which has ramifications which go beyond internal security. That's my basic argument uh, in, in, in the talk. And the point that I'm trying to make is uh, uh, that, you know, it has implications for India's internal security, of course, very clearly, because it's a border state. It's a state which which borders Myanmar. It it is a sensitive state, uh, but it has consequences uh, about India's religious diversities. The people who are being targeted in Manipur, essentially, it's an ethnic cleansing project, which is targeting the the ethnic minority, which is called the Kukizo community, which which are Christians. You know, more than two hundred forty-eight churches have been um, uh, have, be, have been burnt. As per the state police, uh, locals say it's more than six hundred. That's what the affidavit in the Supreme Court says. But uh, you know, two hundred fifty churches—it's a very big number. Uh, the second thing is the authority and the credibility of the Indian state completely lies in debtors in Manipur. More than you know, five thousand six hundred weapons have been taken away from state police armories, and and not even a fourth of them had come ba- have come back after fi- after five months the the state police is unable to go into hill areas the central forces are unable to operate in the in the areas of the plains the state has been divided into two using using buffer zones a polit- there's a political failure the state government has not been sacked the chief minister continues to remain in power uh the center seems to be completely missing mr modi has not visited manipur he has only given two statements a very a very small statement after a couple of cookie women were sexually assaulted and their video became public. And second one during a no confidence motion. He has not publicly chaired a meeting on, on, on Manipur. Uh, the home minister has not gone to Manipur since May, June, end of May. Uh, these, the situation is bad, and the government seems to have a completely hands-off policy uh, to, to, what is going, uh, to what is going on what is going on there. So the credibility of the state, uh, the, the, the internal security challenges, the religious diversity issue uh, is. Is, is really going to put India under pressure. And the fact that India had to move a division back from the China border to Manipur so that it could take care of these internal security duties means that it would also pres- put pressure on India's ability to deal with, uh, deal with China. And the instability is already threatening to you know, expand into other states, whether it is Nagaland, whether it is Mizoram, which are India's two Christian majority states. And also into the neighboring countries like Myanmar and Bangladesh. So this has consequences which go beyond this limited uh, limited area. And the fact that even after five months, nearly six months now, uh, India has been unable to tackle uh, a small crisis like Manipur uh, does not reflect well on Prime Minister Narendra Modi or his government or the or the, or the, Indi- or the Indian state. It can empower other rebels. It can empower other groups. Who believe that they can now take on India because India is not really capable of dealing with them? You know, these rebel groups are in various parts of the country that you had earlier mentioned, and those those people could be really, you know, motivated and empowered to think that you know India is not really that great; they cannot take on take take on any of these crises.
0: Mm. There was a period earlier this summer when circulating on WhatsApp groups, far right me- media channels there was an idea that the British were in some way responsible for a that an Operation Money put had been launched. And the total unreality of this aside, that idea speaks to India's complicated relationship with the West and its complicated relationship with internal issues. And I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit about how, what is expected of India when it comes to democracy, human rights, its role as a secular nation, comes into conflict, and an ally of the West, at least in places like China, comes into conflict with what's going on in India today, the suppression of minorities, the suppression of free expression, and increasing internal tension. With that mismatch, is there a way for the West to continue to work with India, coexist with India? Will those differences be shunted aside in the face of sort of real politic over China's rise, or do you see a split or a bifurcation coming?
1: So there are three three uh, domains in which countries collaborate, and the three domains, as you rightly identify, the, one, the the most important one is interests, and the other two are values and and vision. So you know what we are talking about is the values that end up in a relationship. So a relationship can survive even if interests are not convergent if, if the values are same. So you know if you look at the Western Europe, Western Europe, and at uh, at the United States, the values are same. You know your interests can differ at point some point in time, but your values are largely the same. Of course, if your values are same, then your interests would also broadly, you know, converge or or align at the same time. So the values that uh, the current uh, Indian government espouses are clearly not the values that West espouses. And uh, I think this is a problem. This has been a problem with Asia for a long time. Asia has always believed that post the Second World War, uh, the idea of universal values that the West propagated or the winners of the Second World War propagated were not truly universal. There were Western values, or in some cases Christian values, that were imposed upon Asian countries. And I think uh, the current ruling dispensation in India kind of believes in the same idea. That these are not universal values, whether they are, you know, protection of religious minorities, free freedom of speech, uh, you know, democratic values, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. These are not really universal values, and countries should not hold other countries to account. Sovereignty is the is the primary value which which should be which should be respected. One is value. Second is vision. So the U.S. has a vision of the world which emerged at the end of the Second World War, and now today's India very clearly believes. That that vision is not the vision that that should exist today in the 21st century. Whether it is in the membership of the UN Security Council, whether it is in the membership of the uh, or the shareholding in the in the World Bank or in the IMF, today's India believes uh, that this, this vision of the world is not the vision that should exist anymore. So the, their vision of the world or their vision of Asia or the vision of people is at odds. So what remains is only interests that, that are aligned. And the interests are also not really aligned. A more accurate way to describe it would be that even on China, their interests are converging at this point in time. The US, for its own reasons, does not want China to rise, and India does not want China to be the hegemonic power in Asia. So it is in this contestation that their interests are converging at this point in time, and those convergent interests are bringing the two countries together. Very clearly, uh, as Kissinger famously said, you know, the 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 there's a hinge between interests and values, and countries use that hinge to try and keep it as straight as possible. But more often than not, you know, when it comes to interests, they surpass values. So that's when, that's what like that's what's likely to happen. And we have seen this movie in South Asia before, uh, when General Zia ul Haq or Musharraf General Musharraf were ruling Pakistan, and the United States needed Pakistan whether to defeat the Soviet Union in Afghanistan or fight against the Taliban in Afghanistan. It very clearly did support supported them all the way all the way through, during Zia's period. Nuclear bombs were being developed in Pakistan. Religious minorities were being being targeted. Bhutto was hanged and hanged. A former prime minister was hanged. Everything that could go wrong, everything that was horrible, was happening inside Pakistan. But still, the United States, starting from Jimmy Carter to Ronald Reagan to to George Bush, supported uh, support, supported General Zia through that period. So clearly. If it is, uh, is is if it is in American interest uh, to support Mr. Modi or any other dispensation, uh, because it needs to take on China, contain China, deal with China, uh, even if their values do not match, it would definitely definitely do so. I do not think any Indian should harbor uh, any notion that the United States, because of its values, is going to uh, is going to put pressure on any dispensation anywhere in the world and say, oh, do not do this because you know your values are not matching with us. Uh, that's more of rhetoric. Uh, than the reality. And the latest example is Israel and uh, and Palestine.
0: Now, somewhat unlike Pakistan during that period, and more like Pakistan um, under General Musharraf, India has not been a ally of the West, nor has it just demonstrated much interest in being one. It continues to play Western interests off against countries like Russia, off against China, um, and off against other countries in the global South, like the BRICS um, bloc and group. Is there a danger for India that as it tries to chart its own path and balance these competing interests off against each other, that it ends up hurting itself, either in the short term, in terms of political stability, or in the long term, in terms of those interests you talk about, like containing China?
1: So strategic sovereignty has been a pillar of India's thinking since independence. India has always believed that that it needs to take decisions which are in its own interest without being forced to choose sides and i think that's something which has remained constant and consistent throughout it is something which is uh, which indians still believe in they may give different names to it the current dispensation may call it becoming a leading power or you know a multipolar world whatever term you may want to use or it nehru may have used non alignment others may have used other other terms the fact is that india would uh, india wants to chart it, its own course and does not want to be allied with anyone so you know it can be friends with other countries. It can be partners with other countries, but it is not going to be an ally of, ally of another country. Now the challenge is that this was easily done in the, in the previous Cold War, in the earlier Cold War, in the 20th century Cold War, because that Cold War was happening in Europe. It was happening between Soviet Union and the and the United States. It was not happening in Asia. The current Cold War, and I'm using the term loosely, slightly. You know, the current Cold War is happening in Asia is happening with China, which is India's neighbor, biggest neighbor, it is, uh, it has, India has a major border dispute with China. And if there's going to be a crisis, a military crisis or a, a diplomatic crisis, it is going to occur in India's neighborhood. So it is not possible for India to really replicate what it did in the previous Cold War and keep a totally hands-off policy. If the balloon goes up or if the conflict happens between India and China, and if India finds itself, you know, uh, yeah, incapable of taking on China. What does it do? Does it really go and ask uh, the U.S. for help as Nehru did in '62 after the war? You know, writing those letters, asking for immediate help. Uh, what, so, what are the kind of choices that India will have to make, uh, and uh, can it really maintain its uh, independence in foreign policy or strategic sovereignty? Is some is a is a big challenge. India will continue to pay lip service to strategic sover- sovereignty. India will continue to pay lip service to not being allied to the United States. Uh, but uh, at some point in time, if it does not generate its own capacities, its own power, if India's economic capabilities, if India's military capabilities, if India's uh, capabilities as a country are not that powerful enough to take on China on its own, it may perhaps be forced to align, if not ally, with the United States uh, to to tackle China, to 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 take on China. The thing to the thing to understand is that. India's strength vis-a-vis China is not really military power or economic power at this point in time. India's strength would be its democracy, its diversity, the idea of India as it exists that should be used as a powerful tool to influence countries in the neighborhood. You can't match checkbook for you can't match China checkbook for checkbook. Even the US cannot match it. Forget India matching it, China for checkbook for checkbook. You really cannot match China in terms of the kind of military power that it can project. You know, its military budget is four and a half times India. It's technological level, it's a different level, it's doing multi-domain operations. India is not doing multi-domain operations. India is still a conventional military of the Second World War era, of the 20th century era. So you really cannot match them. What way you can really beat them is in by promoting your diversity, by promoting your democracy and saying this is what a country of the global South with a $2,000 per capita income can hope to be, can really succeed. You can be a democratic country, still improve the lives of your people, still do better and have all kinds of people live, live together. And I think that's where India has missed a trick in the last decade or so under Mr. Modi that is trying to act like a, you know, quasi uh, uh, I don't. I don't want to use the word quasi communist country, but a quasi, you know, a country, uh, a quasi power, rather, uh, which is which is fighting on the wrong front, dying on the wrong hill, rather than choosing the battle that it needs to fight on.
0: And I think we can wrap with one last question about those democratic values. Um, India has coming up next year a general election that may herald the turning of the tide for India's opposition um, for Indian democracy. But it also has a number of state elections coming up this year. Each of them is different. Each of them has its own unique context from Rajasthan, Madhya Pradesh, to Chhattisgarh, Mizoram, uh, Telangana. But what can we expect in these elections? And what do you think the results might augur for next year?
1: If I knew the results, I would be probably betting betting money and making some money off it. I really don't know what the results would be. But talking to my friends, people who understand politics very well, uh, the sense is that the congress party is clearly ahead in Chhattisgarh and in uh, madhya pradesh they seem to be uh, they seem to be in the uh, winning the race there in rajasthan it seems to be a very close net fight in mizoram it seems to be the mizo national front which is because of the M- manipur crisis because the people have gone back there mizo nationalism has come to the front and uh, the Kukizo community's targeting has allowed mizo national front to really uh, really uh, and they're likely to come back, return to power. In Telangana, it seems to be a close fight between the ruling BRS and the Congress Party. The BJP is a marginal uh, third. Uh, so it doesn't look to be uh, BJP all the way in the State Assembly elections as of now, But the but this will only be known uh, once the uh, once the, once the results are once the once the results are out so in the, in the state assembly elections uh the opposition parties had, in recent uh, months have done well as you know the karnataka elections was won by congress thumpingly by you know by a by a big margin even in himachal pradesh uh, the congress party won and that's the state where the bjp national president comes from, comes from uh, so you know the, in the state assembly elections despite the uh, the democratic decline or the democratic backsliding in india and it not really being uh, they being free, but not really fair elections. If I if I may say so, uh, these the uh, parties have been able to do well, and uh, as of now, it seems that the elections are going to be well contested uh, in the in the during the next, during the next month.
0: Great. So we we'll look forward to those results. Thank you very much for joining me.
1: Thank you so much, Devon. It was fun talking to you.